Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. So Adam, did you see that they had to bring back the Ardern and Bloomfield show at the 1pm press conference? I thought they'd cancelled it and we're just going to play reruns of the popular Level 4 episodes. Uh, it's all changed. Back by popular demand, apparently. Ashley and Jacinda are back for the duration of Level 3. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Wednesday, day the 29th of April. Good typing, Eugene. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm a terrible typist, Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the headlines, take a look at some of the more unusual things about this global crisis, and then focus on one particular topic. So it turns out that New Zealand's lockdown could have been quite a lot more extreme. This was something that sort of slipped out during a press conference today where Winston Peters, with his foreign minister hat on, was praising the way MFAT got all those Kiwis home from overseas. Then he mentioned that the Ministry of Health had initially proposed shutting the borders to everyone, not just foreigners. Yeah, wow. He said that Cabinet pushed back and he went with the system we've got right now. So you can get back home if you're a citizen or a few other exemptions and you have to stay in quarantine. Imagine the uproar if it had happened. You know, I'm just thinking, and this was a few weeks earlier than the border shutdown, obviously, but in late January, I was in Hawaii on a family holiday. And, you know, once we were all holidayed out, we flew back to New Zealand. You kind of take it for granted, don't you, that you're going to be allowed back into your own country. I will admit that I was thinking a bit about coronavirus. It was sort of starting to hit the news then. And so before we boarded, we went into Walmart and we bought a bunch of alcohol-based hand wash and wipes to clean the surfaces in our seats. You know, the tray, the seats, the armrests, those kind of things. Well, funny you should say that, because later we talked to Tripti Parada, Stuff's travel editor, and Tripti pointed out that last August, model Naomi Campbell posted a video of herself disinfecting all around her plane seat, and many millions of people took to social media to mock her. How times have changed. So that's later in the show, but first, what's happened today? Only two new cases today, and there are only six people in hospital with no one in intensive care. Some other numbers were revealed today. Police say there were 104 breaches in the first 18 hours of Alert Level 3, 21 of which resulted in prosecutions. There were also 742 complaints of businesses not complying with Level 3 rules. Mostly that's about lack of physical distancing. Even more numbers. School proper was back today because it was a teacher-only day yesterday. Just under 12,000 students went to an actual school with actual rooms and blackboards. Actually, do they have blackboards? Anyway, 12,000, that's just 1% of the usual school roll. Uh, another 7,000 kids were at early childhood centres, and that's about 4% of normal. Right, that's enough numbers for today. Actually, actually, no, no, because this one seems significant. The US has confirmed there have been more than 58,000 deaths. So that means more Americans have died with COVID-19 than died in the Vietnam War. So a few weeks back after we interviewed Helen Clark and she said some negative things about Donald Trump, our email inbox briefly lit up with quite a few folk who were very angry that we'd given a platform to someone who thought the US president was anything other than marvellous. There was some swearing and there were some insults thrown about and there were a few emails suggesting that we've got something against Donald Trump. That's not really how we operate, actually. But like many members of the media, we have been startled you might say, at the US president's handling of this crisis, and especially his grasp of the science of it all. But there's a really interesting point political reporter Thomas Coughlin made in a column in Stuff this morning. Um, So sometimes, like a broken clock, Trump gets things right for the wrong reason. And Thomas points out that sometimes it works the other way too. He says that when Trump 
attacked the WHO in the middle of the pandemic. That's that's going back a couple of weeks when he was really having a go at them. He was arguably doing the wrong thing, but for the right reasons. So you got that? So, Thomas, welcome to the show. Hello. Can you explain for us what are the things that the World Health Organization has got to answer for? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, um, you know, speaking from the perspective of the end of April, it's pretty clear that COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, uh, is a massive global health issue, probably the biggest global health issue of the last century. And it it didn't appear, at least at the beginning of the year, that the WHO was sounding the alarm uh, as potentially as much as it should have been, given its, its mandate. It was initially critical of travel bans uh, and said that the the world should pull together but not necessarily disrupt the the flow of people and trade. And and it criticised those travel bans as sort of being um, reactionary and protectionist when in fact, as we've seen in in New Zealand, travel bans are an essential way of making sure that the disease, uh, the virus, doesn't um, travel between countries. It's it's essential to, to keep the virus out as much as it is to stamp it out. So I think that the issue is mainly speed and competence. And there have been sort of persistent criticisms. Um, you know, the WHO is obviously a massive organisation with a whole lot of people uh, who are at the top of their game and working very hard to, to stamp this virus out. But it's also the sum of its parts. And its parts are countries, and each country has its own political agenda as much as it has its own health agenda. So while the WHO and, and many of the staff there are working really honest, earnestly and honestly to um, get on top of the coronavirus, it's also true that there's politics involved. And obviously the biggest political story in international politics is the one that's unfolding between the US and China. And the WHO is caught awkwardly in the middle of this. And I think on the issue of, of the United States versus China, Donald Trump makes some very fair points about China's honesty in terms of reporting how serious the coronavirus was. So what are the missteps that China has made? We've learned now that the coronavirus began in Wuhan at the wet market. There have been reports out of China that, that there were doctors and health professionals who sounded the alarm maybe as early as November last year, certainly in December last year. Um, but China didn't really sound the alarm until the very last day of last year. Uh, and China also denied that there was human-to-human transition until quite late in the piece. It was slow to implement lockdowns. Uh, this was a particular concern around Chinese New Year, which is a big holiday in China, obviously. It's when millions of people all across the country leave their uh, place of work and head home. Uh, And that meant that the virus had the opportunity to spread all throughout China and, in fact, the world. There's some really good reporting that's been done, which suggests that if China had locked down most of the country before Chinese New Year, the virus would have spread much less than it actually did because people wouldn't have had the opportunity to leave where where they were and where the virus was. And the WHO essentially backed uh, China's position on this, and it still backed China's position on this in terms of the honesty of the reporting, when in fact it seems pretty clear from a lot of international media reports that there was at least the suppression of some of some very vital information and potentially a cover-up of how bad this was. And certainly it's very important for, for China to be held to account about acknowledging how dangerous and serious this was when it's become not just a problem for China. Uh, it's obviously free to do what it wants to inside its own borders, um, but it's become a massive global health issue and China's lack of action has, has hurt all of us. Where does New Zealand stand in all this? Have we criticised the WHO or, or supported calls that some leaders have made for an inquiry into China? 
Jacinda Ardern has been very uh, cautious, obviously. Um, the New Zealand economy has been absolutely nailed by this. And um, China is essentially the, the, what we're going to hitch our wagon to, to to drag ourselves out of this crisis economically. Um, so we've, our government's probably being pretty cautious on this, um, not wanting to anger our largest trading partner. Okay, so we've established that Trump might have had some justification for criticising the WHO. But just to be crystal clear, is it a good idea to defund the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic? I, I feel like that would be as wise as changing planes during the middle of a flight. You kind <laughs> of have to, you pick your horse and you kind of got to back it to the end, right? <laughs> Thomas Coughlin, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. So you know this WTF investigation we've got underway, where's the flower? We want to get to the bottom of why there's still no flower on our shelves. And remember how we'd gone to the supermarket at the weekend and the shelves were bare? Well, we mentioned our investigation to Trupti Barada. She's Stuff's travel editor. And we are interviewing her about COVID-19 and what it means for the future of travel. It's a really good interview and it's coming up later in the show. But, you know, we're quite distracted by this important journalistic task of this investigation at hand. And so, of course, we mentioned it to her anyway. She had some really interesting things to say. Um, I think you need to be hanging out in Epsom because Pharaoh Epsom has had flour every time I've gone there. You're kidding. No. It's one world for the rich and one world for the poor, isn't it? Well, and it's like a people sort of flaunting it, you know, do people sort of just like spray it around the car park and stuff? I did see some dodgy people a couple of days ago, so I wonder what if they're selling it, maybe. <laughs> Well, I've heard that um, some flower dealers have been cutting their flour with cocaine to uh, to bulk it out. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get to the bottom of this, so thank you for your information. Yeah, so it's funny that Tripti mentioned people buying and selling because I've actually got some connections with this, I guess you'd call it a shadowy, shadowy network of people with a close interest in flour. Yesterday, a contact of mine showed me a message they'd received from, a, from an associate. It was a photo of four large bags of flour on a, on a shelf and a message, very short, simple message underneath it. It said, flour in countdown now. So my contact wasted no time and um, quickly went on a permission, I guess, returning to our, our, our house with a big bag of flour. What, I, what, are, what are you eating? I can see you eating Cho something on the video chocolate call. Brown, cho chocolate brownie. <sighs> All right. Okay. Well, look, I've got a source who's told me about the distribution of flour via a network up north with drop-offs arranging car parks. Seriously. So it seems there's a lot more to this story than we thought. Yeah. And something else happened as well. After we spoke to... Sorry. It's really quite a sticky brownie. After we spoke to Kylie Klein-Nixon yesterday about her baking obsession, she actually rang us back with some more information. Hey, listen, I just want to, I wanted to, um, to bring up one point. You know what else? It's not just the flour. It wasn't the flour. It wasn't just the flour. But even when the flour came back, there was no baking powder. And that was a real tragedy. Oh, oh, lost you. It's gone all together. Yeah, that was just weird, you know. It's almost like someone didn't want us knowing about what's really going on. We, like, I feel, Adam, that we need some advice, you know. Who's the hardest-nosed investigative journalist that we know? Got to be Tony Wall. Tony it's, Wall. Oh, it's got to be Wallow. Wallow, of course. Not only is he Stuff's national correspondent, a multiple award-winning investigative journalist, he even had a program on TV a few years back, nabbing bad guys. Let's give him a ring. 
Hey, Wallo, how's it going? Good, good. How's it going, guys? Yeah, pretty good. Well, a bit intense because you know about this WTF investigation we've got going? Yeah. Where's the flower? We're really looking for some advice. You know, what are some of the methods that you've used to crack really big stories that people don't want you to find out about? Well, I've um, had some fun over the years with it. A few years back, I had a TV show on TV2 called Illegal New Zealand. Oh, I remember that. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, it rated quite well. Um, and it involved going into sort of undercover type situations with hidden cameras, really. And so I had like a camera hidden in a tie and a button camera on a shirt and this kind of thing. And I was going into like gang pads and all, all, um, I bought some steroids off a drug dealer and all this kind of thing and went and saw a um, dodgy education provider who gave me a degree. Pre- um, the funniest one, I think, was I, I went into a men's clinic um, to see whether he'd give me a steroid injection and he got me to drop my pants. And <laughs> But just before I was about to be jabbed in the bum with a needle, I managed to pull out of it. But um, yeah, the old hidden camera is definitely a good, a good technique. Particularly good for podcasts, I guess. not so good for podcasts so here's our situation we're trying to work out where the flower's gone who's got it all um when we can expect normal distribution to begin again best scone recipes all sorts of important things how do you reckon we should go about cracking these these big questions about flour um have you tried ringing countdown oh Uh. no not that's a really good idea. Thanks. That's a, that's a good idea. All right. Thanks, thanks, mate. Okay. So we may not have eliminated or eradicated coronavirus yet, but there are some scientists who are already looking ahead. They're asking what fresh horror awaits us after COVID nineteen. Now we know coronavirus started out as an animal disease, likely from bats, and somehow made its way into humans. And don't forget the pangolins. Well, there's a dispute over that. Ah, well, as you were. So there's a new program being funded out of Australia to get a squad of essentially animal detectives trained up across Southeast Asia and the Pacific to be able to spot and deal with diseases that may threaten humans. Because COVID's not the only new disease to jump species recently. eh? We've had SARS and MERS. Just to be clear here, when you say animal detectives, you don't mean like in the cartoons where there's like a dog with a monocle and a little hat like Sherlock Holmes do. No. You mean these are humans, like like vets. Vets? Yeah, yeah, not 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 just vets. They're veterinary scientists, so I guess some of them will be vets. But there'll be animal epidemiologists and so on. Basically, forty experts from vet schools across the region, including New Zealand, they're going to train up people in eleven countries to be able to do this detective work, as it were. So one of the guys getting this going, his name's Navneet Dant. He's an associate professor from the University of Sydney. He said one of the problems is that more and more people are encroaching onto wild habitats. And he says, to protect humans from these diseases, we must look for pathogens and diseases upstream in domestic animals and wildlife before they spread to the human population. All power to them, right? Because, you know, it's a complicated situation with growing populations looking for food sources, but anything we can do to protect the world from future outbreaks has got to be critical. Right, email inbox. We heard from Jane Hall with a question. She wrote, is there any chance you could explain why we are still getting new cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand? I get that there are people arriving from overseas who will enter New Zealand with it, but why are some of the known clusters still increasing when we've been in lockdown for two disease cycles? And then she adds, and that this is quite important, I'm enjoying your podcasts, BTW. Nice. Thanks, Jane. It's a, it's a good question too. Uh, infectious diseases specialist Dr. Susie Wiles and epidemiologist Dr. Michael Baker have been looking at this. 
So there are a couple of main categories. The overseas travellers returning, as Jane mentioned, and, and they're being quarantined. There are also delayed positive cases. So they're people who've had mild symptoms who don't get around to getting tested because they kind of don't realise they've got it. But Dr. Walls and Dr. Baker think it's likely some of the new cases are a result of people breaking bubbles or expanding bubbles, which is obviously high risk. So that's where people are brought together, susceptible people and known cases, and there's a new infection. That's fascinating. I'd be curious to know exactly how many of those numbers are from bubble busting. Anyway, I hope that helps answer your question, Jane. Right, Plague Playlist. What do you got, Adam? Before we hear today's Plague Playlist entrant, some music history. Now, great art has often been inspired by other great art. You know, Brahms made a real name for himself with his variations on a theme by Haydn, for instance. And would we really remember Vanilla Ice if he hadn't sampled that amazing riff from Under Pressure, you know, the song by Queen and David Bowie? But what's amazing about cultural recycling is that sometimes things come full circle, things get a bit meta. And that's what we're going to hear today. So you might remember a few weeks ago, we interviewed the Prime Minister and we talked about some grown-up stuff and about the Easter Bunny, and Eugene did a particularly good segue, as I recall. Anyway, right at the end, I asked Jacinda Ardern if she had any recommendations for the Plague playlist. She obliged, and we played the song, which was a tribute to Ashley Bloomfield, written and performed by a guy called Maxwell Apps. So that was that. But then Maxwell contacted us. I imagine it was, it was pretty much exactly the same as when Vanilla called up Freddie and Bowie. And he asked if... Seeing we had used a clip from his creation, could he use a clip from ours? Namely, the bit where Ardern requested his song. Yeah, we held a meeting to discuss the proposal. You know, it got a bit lengthy and sort of bogged down because we had to get lawyers involved and agents. You know, it gets a bit awkward too because Adam's got a different agent to me. But anyway, after due consideration, we decided to say, yes, feel free. And you can do it with no fee. And now... Maxwell Apps has released a brand new version of the song, only this time he sampled us into it. This is very exciting. So here's the intro. Earlier today, someone played me a little a little snippet of the Ashley Bloomfield tribute piece. Um, so I don't oh. know if you can find that. We will. I did not know there was such a thing. That there song, is. I- So, as requested by the Prime Minister, you're listening to Maxwell Apps. And then the song proper begins. Actually, Maxwell has additionally released a piano acoustic version of the song, and seeing we've already played the original version, that's the electronic kind of poppy one, today we're just going to hear a bit of the piano one. I'm stuck in isolation, but it's not so bad. Because every dead one. I get to see my man He's got blonde hair He's got that face He knows just what to say You might remember international travel. It's something people used to do for fun. You get on a plane, go somewhere, cool, drink cocktails, come back and brag about it. Or sometimes it was for work, where people would get on a plane, go somewhere, cool, drink cocktails, attend a couple of meetings they could have done with a Zoom conference, then come back and brag about it. Anyway... Back when people travelled, there were sections in newspapers and in current affairs websites where you could read about the next place you might go travelling, or just about people who were going places you couldn't quite afford to go to. At Stuff, those pages were looked after by Trupti Parada. In fact, still are. She is Stuff's travel editor, and she's on the line now. So, Trupti, are you dreaming about Boeing 737s? 
<laughs> I'm dreaming about getting out of my house right now. Um, <laughs> that could be just to get to Ponsonby because I live in a really um, lonely bubble of one. Baby steps then. Get out of your house before you get on a plane. Yes. At this point, anything is ideal. <laughs> at level three, no one much is flying in or out of New Zealand at all. So when can we travel internationally again? Uh, that's a really, really good question. Um, and the answer is nobody knows. <laughs> a lot of it could depend on how far away we are from a vaccine. A lot of it can depend on how well other countries are handling COVID-19. I think the interesting thing is everyone is kind of working together to get international travel up and running as soon as possible, because there's something like 10% of the global workforce is employed by the tourism industry. And there's just trillions of dollars worldwide, billions in New Zealand that are being lost because of this pandemic. But what's quite interesting to see is that um, airlines like Emirates, for example, are trialing things like rapid blood tests at the gate. So when you go, uh, when you're about to board your flight, they do this little finger prick test. And in 10 minutes, they have your results. And if obviously, if you test positive, you're denied boarding. But it's one way of ensuring that nobody on the flight has the virus. I don't know how... Um, viable that is, how expensive it is, how accurate it is. But if it turns out to be something that can be deployed more widely, then that might be a total game changer and we might see international travel come back sooner than we thought. But for now, I think everyone's playing it super cautious. Are you talking to people in the industry who are trying to come up with those sorts of solutions? I mean, how, you know, how, to what extent are they sort of scrambling to find those sorts of ideas that might get things going again? I think the travel industry was ripe for disruption. Like uh, everyone thought something was coming, but we thought that something was climate change, not a health crisis. So everyone was innovating, trying to think of ways to do things differently, trying to be more sustainable. Like we had a problem, right? Um, Over-tourism was ruining the planet. We had way too many planes in the air, climate change. All of this was an ongoing thing. Nobody saw this coming. So people have had to pivot their focus pretty quickly. So those are things that, that the industry is trying to do to, in the immediate future. But what are the other ways do you think that international travel might change? You know, everyone made fun of Naomi Campbell last year when that video did the rounds of her, like, wiping down everything in her on her seat, like her seat, her seat back. And she had this big pack of disinfectant wipes and she was literally just wiping everything down and everyone made fun of her. But to be honest, I feel like that's the direction we're going in. If you look at what the industry is talking about right now, I think international travel is going to change quite a bit. It's not just the blood test at check-in. There might be thermal imaging that happens either before you board a plane or before they let you off the plane or rather out of the airport to see if you have a fever. You might have to have a health certificate, you know, the way you have a passport right now. It might be that you're not allowed into a country unless you tick that box and, you know, have those antibodies and have that health certificate. We're seeing technology companies come up with things like disinfectant tunnels. So you kind of have to walk through before you get to your flight that sprays, I don't know what it would spray you, some form of disinfectant that hopefully kills whatever virus is on the surfaces. There are some countries that already do this, but you might have instant check-ins that use 
facial recognition and e-passports and robot cleaners and just anything that lets you minimize contact with another person and kind of keep that social distancing. I think it was Air Asia is one of the airlines that's looking like it's ready to start flying internationally again. And they've been talking about how you won't be allowed as much carry-on baggage because they'll have to change the way they look at overhead cabins because you can't have one person's stuff touching another person's stuff. We might do away with the middle seat. Up until now, it's been like, how many people can you cram into a cabin? Then you're not going to be able to do that if social distancing is a norm. Uh, so airlines already are leaving a seat between passengers. So even when Air New Zealand is flying, they try to maintain a seat between each passenger so that you're not all up in someone else's face. But the flip side to that means that that's a third of that airfare income lost, which means that airfares will probably rise. We've sort of been here once before. 9-11 was this seismic shock to how we travel internationally. And it's been a total pain in the neck. Do you think there are any lessons we can learn from that, either in terms of how to respond effectively or how to not mess up the way we did after 9-11? I feel like 9-11 shows that tourism companies need to be extremely flexible in how they do things. And that was, you know, when we brought in the 100 milliliter rule and um, total body scanner. And to be honest with you, when you think about it now, it's not a big deal. It's just a part and parcel of travel, like nobody thinks twice about it. I think a few years from now, things like the blood test, things like the thermal imaging, things like less carry-on and higher prices are just going to become a normal part of travel. And you'll find that people accept them pretty quickly if it means that they can get to the places they want to get to. Um, but I think the biggest thing is the livelihoods and the economies that depend on it. More than 10% of the global workforce is employed by the tourism industry. That's that's a lot of jobs lost and a lot of lives ruined. So I think people will find a way to make it work again. We're not going to be jetting off to anywhere around the world for a while. We know that. So what should we do in the meantime? I feel like it's a really, really good opportunity if you had international travel booked this year that you can't take. I think we have a really good opportunity to spend that money within New Zealand and help the industry recover. Um, there is so much to do in this country that people don't even don't even know half of what's on their doorstep. I've lived here for eight years and I've never been to Milford Sound just because every time I look at pictures of it, it's just so packed with people. Mm. It's so crowded. Um, that maybe now is the time to get out and see all those spots that, you know, you'd avoid before because there were way too many people. So we, we just a week before we went into lockdown, we launched a campaign uh, where we wanted to show Kiwis more of their, uh, more of New Zealand. We, we got it off the ground and it lasted a, about a week and then we went into lockdown. So we kind of put it on the back burner, but it's called um, Back Your Backyard. Mm -hmm. So it's meant to showcase all those cool places that are like right on your doorstep that people maybe don't know about or that you thought was out of your reach um, and just entice people to travel locally. So what about you, Tripti? What will be the very first bit of recreational travel you plan to do once we're out of all the various lockdowns? Wow, the pressure. I haven't actually thought that far. I feel like I want to go on a wine holiday somewhere. 
with do that with some other people so I'm not sitting at home drinking alone anymore like I have been the last five weeks. <laughs> Tripti Brada, I hope you can get out and get to your wine, meet other people and just generally live a little as soon as humanly possible. It might only be a few weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday, the 29th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Thomas Coughlin, Tony Wall, Tripti Burada, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen, and Carol Hirschfeld, and the unnamed contacts who have been assisting us in our WTF investigations. Yeah, keep those anonymous tips coming. Another episode down. You can find all the previous episodes of the podcast on usual podcast platforms. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Don't forget, too, if you want to direct support stuff journalism we've recently set up a system where you can make a financial contribution via a link on the stuff website stuff.co.nz go do it adiós